Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. I'll invite your attention to the book of Ephesians. Let's open our Bibles there to Ephesians chapter 2. We're studying verse by verse throughout the year 2016 through the book of Ephesians. Last week we came to the beginning of chapter 2, and I want to read verses 1 through 10 this morning, and uh, we'll jump into our text beginning in verse 4. The Apostle Paul writes, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus." So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading, hearing, the study of his word. Now last week we looked at the, the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2. And there the Apostle Paul laid out our condition before we were saved. He uses the past tense verb were. He says, and you were, past tense, dead in trespasses and sins. Now I take from that 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 is the condition of every person before they're saved. If you're saved, that used to be your condition. If you're lost, that is still your condition, dead in trespasses and sins. In fact, the title of last week's sermon was Dead Men Walking, because that's what the Bible says we are. Even though we're alive physically, our heart is beating, we're moving around, putting one foot in front of the other, if we don't know Jesus, we're dead spiritually, which means we are insensitive to spiritual things. We sometimes grow frustrated with lost people that they don't understand our point of view, but the truth is they can understand the biblical point of view because they are insensitive to spiritual matters. In fact, he says we, we're all walking in worldliness according to this course of this present world. That, that is, we were moving in the direction of the world system. We saw last week that the world is dominated by hypersexuality. It's dominated by um, humanism. It's dominated by materialism and a rejection of God. And so we were in that same condition. We were walking according to that style of life. And truthfully, we were controlled by Satan, though we didn't know it. We were in bondage to our own sin. And Satan, who is the prince of the power of this world, is the one behind it all. And on Wednesday nights, we're studying through Romans. And, and this past week, we're in Romans chapter 11, which has to do with God's plan for the nation of Israel. And one of the dear ladies in the church at the end of the service asked the question, why did Germany kill 6 million Jews in the 1930s and 40s? Of course, there's a lot of political things I could have gone into, but I said, do you remember last Sunday when the scripture says 
that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. That means that Satan is controlling the world systems. Now, I think it's easy for us to see a person like Adolf Hitler being influenced by Satan, but it's not just talking about the worst of the worst. It's talking about in general, this world system is being manipulated behind the scenes by Satan's and these evil forces that we can't see with our eyes. Now we concluded by saying that verse four is quite possibly the most important verse in all the Bible. I say quite possibly, I think last week I just said it is the most important verse, but I've come to understand I'm not the one that gets to decide that, but that is my opinion that verse four is the most important verse in the Bible because it says, but God. Even though all those things were true of us, even though we were dead in trespasses and sins, even though we were in rebellion against God, we were going down the same road the rest of the world, even though we were being controlled by Satan and our own lust, God chose to love us anyway. And so let's look at verse four. But God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Now, many years ago when I was in college, I needed three hours to complete my requirements. I had met all my major requirements. I needed what we call an elective. Now, when I choose electives, when I chose electives, I was not looking for something to challenge me. <laughs> I was looking for something preferably that started afternoon and something that would not require too much effort, probably something that had a, a, a large student population in the class so that if I happened to need to miss a day or two, they would notice. And so I signed up for a class called Introduction to Journalism. I thought, surely all the freshmen will take this and the class will be crowded and I won't have to do much. And I showed up and I realized I'd made a terrible mistake. I had miscalculated. There are only two other people in the whole class. And so it was the professor and the three of us, which meant that every third day, I had to give a presentation. And instead of turning into a quick A, it turned into to some work. But I'm glad I took that class because something I learned in there I, I carry with me to this day, and that is the questions that journalists have to ask of any story. You knew what they are. Who, what, where, when, and why. Who is the main character of the story? What did they do? Where did it happen? When did it happen? And what are the implications? That is, why did it happen? And I say I take that with me today because at that time, as a young college student, I had no idea what I was going to be doing in 25 years. Certainly didn't expect to be a Baptist preacher. But I learned some things in that class that I use every day as I study the Bible. When I study the Bible, I ask of the text diagnostic questions. Who is this text about? Why did the Lord give it to us? When did it happen in space and time? What are the implications of it? The very same questions that I used in that first year journalism class. And so I just wanna let you in on that today because if you look at your outline, it's simply some of those diagnostic questions of this text. Now this would work on just about any text of the Bible, but it certainly works in this particular one, Ephesians chapter two, verses four through nine. Now I left off a very important question and I'll start with that and that is who? I'm assuming you know who this text is about. Who's it about? About God. By the way, whenever I ask you the question, who is this text about? The answer is always the same. Okay, it's God. The Bible is about God. It is, this is his story. It's about him. Now we'll have 
secondary and tertiary characters like Noah and Jonah and Simon Peter and the Apostle Paul, but the text is about God. He is revealing himself to us through the text. Now, I remember years before I went to college in elementary school, there was another challenging class, and that was grammar. And you know I still struggle with that, so you know what a challenge it was. And so uh, I remember in second grade, the teacher took a piece of chalk on the blackboard, and she took uh, at the top of the board, and she drew a line just like this. And then she took a longer line and drew it horizontally. And she said, today, we're going to learn about subjects and verbs. And so on one side of the line, the left side, she said, this is the subject and this is the predicate over here. You remember that, right? And every sentence has to have a subject and a predicate, a subject and a verb. And so what is the subject of this sentence? But God being rich in mercy because of his great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, made us alive. Well, the subject is the same answer to the question who this is about. It's God, right? And so you'll notice that in the Pauline literature, Paul is always like a heat-seeking missile, pointing the attention, the glory, the thanksgiving and honor for our salvation towards God. And he's doing that here. He said, even though we were dead in sins, even though we had all those things against us, God was rich in mercy and he made us alive. The simple sentence is, God made. All the other verses, all the other phrases for the rest of the sentence are modifiers of the subject and the verb. Now let's go to our outline. The first question we want to ask is why? In other words, what motivated God to make us alive? Well, he says, because of the great love wherewith he loved us. Now, I, I don't want to cause you to think too deeply today that it would give you a headache, but when you're asked the question why, and there's a phrase that says because, you need to look closely at that phrase, right? It says because of the great love wherewith he loved us. Even before that, it says he was rich in mercy. Now, the Lord is, is rich in a lot of things, right? The Bible says the cattle on a thousand hills are his. In fact, we are all his possession. We've been bought with a price. Therefore, we belong to the Lord. He's rescued out of sin's tyranny, and we are now called his. He's adopted us into his family. But when it says he's rich in mercy, it just means that there's no end to it. He's got a lot of it, doesn't he? And so because he's motivated by mercy, he expressed that by showing love. And we often say here that this is a different kind of love than you see on television or you hear in a pop song. This is an intentional kind of love that was not motivated by loveliness in the other person. It was not a return of affections from another person. Remember, it says, even when we were dead in sins, there's nothing attractive about a corpse, nothing attractive about one who can't show any affection to us and yet he loved us anyway. John chapter three, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. This is that love that is in and of itself, a determined kind of love. This is how God loves us. We know that, that's Christianity 101. We need to be reminded though of the second question, which is why not? There's a reason that we know that he was not motivated to do this. It's not because we were lovable. It's not because of some attractiveness within us, not some irresistibility that God could not help himself. And so he points this out in verse five. He says, even when, and you can write parenthetically out to the side, in spite of the fact, 
that we were dead in sins. He determined to love us anyway. Now this is countercultural. It's somewhat even counterintuitive to what we know about love because we tend to think, and it's the philosophy of this world, that the answer to life's questions lie within us, right? It may be hidden, it may be opaque, but somewhere down there we have all this hidden potential that God just needs to tap into so that we can be the people that he wants us to be. That's not what the Bible teaches whatsoever. The Bible teaches that there was no potentiality within us. There is no hidden reserve that he taps into that if there's anything good within us, it's because he poured it into us, right? The theologians call this alien righteousness. It comes from without us. And so he didn't look at us and say, I'm going to love those people because I see potential in them. He didn't look at us and say, I believe if I clean them up a little bit, they could really shine. That's not it at all. It's because he determined to set his affection on us because he is a God of love. And our third question there is what? What did he do? What is the action of God? You remember that Paul tends to write in long, complex sentences. In chapter 1, we saw verse 3 through 14 in his introduction is one long sentence. He keeps adding phrases and conjunctions and modifiers to it, but it's one long sentence. We see another example of these long sentences beginning in uh, verse 4 and continuing all the way through verse 10. And, and you remember that uh, your elementary teacher probably told you not to begin a sentence with a conjunction. But Paul, I think, for effect does. He says, but... And he's marking that clear line of demarcation between what we used to be and what we are now because of what God has done. We used to be dead, but now he has made us alive. And remember what we said last week, that the thing someone who is dead needs more than anything else is what? It's life. If you're dead, your only real need is life. And so God is the author of life. He is the giver of life. And we call this in theological terms, regeneration. I quoted a moment ago John 3.16, but you'll recall that that is a conversation between the Lord Jesus and this religious man, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. He came to Jesus under cover of darkness, I believe, to ask some questions about eternal life. And, and Jesus stopped him right in his tracks and said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And what he was saying, among other things, is it's not that you add faith in Christ to the laundry list of things that you're doing right. It's that you replace faith in Christ with, uh, you replace all those other things with faith in Christ. It's Christ alone, the reformer said. And of course, that is exactly right. And it's a work of God. He is the one that has to breathe spiritual life in us. It's not a decision we make. It's not turning over a new leaf. It's the same thing that happened when Jesus told his friend Lazarus, come forth. Spiritually speaking, when we hear the gospel message, the spirit moves upon us, convicts us of sin and judgment and righteousness and declares to our cold, dead corpse of a spirit, come forth, have life. And we're born again at that moment. And if you've not experienced regeneration, you're not a Christian in the biblical sense of the term. You still are in your trespasses and sins. And he says he did this together with Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. It's, it's a, 
same way, a different way rather, of saying that little prepositional phrase we've been seeing throughout the first and second chapter of Ephesians, in Christ. Everything that Paul says about who we are as Christians, he adds the prepositional phrase, in Christ, because that's what's made the change. Theologians, remember, call this our mystical union with him. And what are some of the implications to that? Well, Paul says that because we are in Christ, we are dead with him, right? We no longer have to face the consequences of our own sin, which is spiritual death and damnation, because Jesus has already experienced that through his substitutionary atoning death on the cross. But he says we're also buried with Christ. Remember, they took Jesus down from the cross and they put him in a borrowed tomb. And then he says we have been resurrected with Christ. We're going to talk about that a lot more in the next few weeks leading up to Easter. But remember that the resurrection wasn't even the end of the story because for 40 days Jesus ministered to his disciples. And at the end of that period, he ascended from the Mount of Olives in their very presence. And the scripture says he is alive today, seated at the right hand of the Father. And that is why he says in verse 6, he's raised us up with him, that is the resurrection, and seated us with him in the heavenly places. That is the ascension. Because where is Jesus today? The Bible says he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, to be at the right hand of a sovereign king is a place of honor. And we know that Jesus is co-equal, co-regent with the Father in every way. But I think the most significant part of that statement that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father is his posture, seated. That tells us that he's accomplished everything the Father intended him to accomplish, right? Remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross with his last breath, what did he declare? It is what? Finished. He accomplished what the Father sent him to accomplish. And now he awaits the Father's instructions to go and get the church. Now, let's go back to our outline. Fourthly, when? When did this take place? Well, there is an aspect of the past, the present, and the future. We've said many times as it relates to our salvation. That is, Ephesians 1 says, in the past, God the Father chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And then in time and place, in, in the historic present, in other words, He sent forth His Son to take on the form of a man, to live a perfect life, and die on the cross. And then in time and space, He individually called us through His effectual calling by the Holy Spirit, regenerated us, and gave us life, declared us justified adopted us into his family. And then he is now sanctifying us. That is, he's separating us from sin until he calls us home through death or he comes again for his church. But we know the ultimate expression of salvation awaits in the future. Remember Ephesians 1, it says, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. And we call that a glorification or heaven. So there's this past, present, and future element of our salvation. But look what he says, verse 7, he says, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness. Now, our former pastor, Dr. Patterson, used to like to use the expression, he says, look at all these trophies of God's grace. He was not talking about the building. He was talking about you. He was talking about the people. 
All believers are trophies of God's grace. Now listen, it has been many decades since I won a trophy of any kind. But believe it or not, there was a day when I won a few trophies. And about 10 years ago, before my parents uh, moved back uh, here to Texas, I went home to Mississippi to visit them and um, went into my old bedroom. And believe it or not, there on my shelf were my trophies. My mother never put them away. And so uh, I took them down and, and looked at it. And you know what happens when you're in your mid-30s and you realize your best years are behind you? <laughs> you? You dust off your trophies and you scooch them up a little bit so people can see them. You want to be reminded you did have a better day. Now, as important as our trophies are to us, and your trophies may be homes or boats or or your children, your greatest achievements in life you want to put on display. Those things all pale in comparison to being a trophy of God's grace. Because whose trophies are there? They're God's, which means He's the one who earned them, right? We don't take any pride in being trophies of God's grace. Trophies are the rewards of someone else's achievements. And so He says that when He raised us up spiritually, resurrected us spiritually. He also raised us up to the heavenlies, he says in verse 6, where we are with Christ, so that in the ages to come, I take that for eternity to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What, what's going to happen for all of eternity is he's going to continue to hold us up as trophies of what Jesus did on the cross, right? Not because of what we did, but because of what he did. Now that leads us to our final question, how? Through what means did he bring this about? Well, you know this. He says in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourself, it is a gift of God. And unless we would think it is by our works, he repeats verse 9, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And verse 4, he begins by saying, God was rich in mercy. And at the end of the sentence, he says that God gave us grace. Grace and mercy are two sides of the same theological coin. But they're a little bit different. God's mercy is his withholding something bad that we have earned and we do deserve. What does the Bible say we have earned because of our sinfulness? Death. The wages of sin is death. And so when God withholds spiritual death, he did that, of course, through Jesus' atonement on the cross. He is showing mercy. We deserve death and damnation, but he withholds that. But it's not just that he brings us to some point of spiritual neutrality and then walks away from us. He also gives us grace. Grace, as you know, is God's unmerited favor. Getting something good that we have not earned and we do not deserve. And of course, God's gift of grace is salvation. And so that's why he says salvation is by grace. How? Through faith. Now, what is faith? Faith is the answer to the Philippian jailer's question. What must I do to be saved? He thought he had to do some sort of achievement or accomplishment. And Paul says, no, you have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ certainly means more than 
giving intellectual assent that a man named Jesus walked the earth 2,000 years ago. It means more than just admitting that he was a good man or a good prophet or a misunderstood martyr. It is to acknowledge that all of the claims that he made are absolutely true, including that he is God. And because he is God, he makes a claim on your life. He has the right to tell you what to do. And what he tells you to do is to repent and believe. Remember that conversation with Nicodemus and the Lord Jesus in John chapter 3. Jesus told him he had to set aside those accomplishments in his past. And like the worst sinner that he possibly knew, he had to come with humility and believe and be saved. And what he added was failure to believe leads to God's wrath. Remember what we said last week. When we were dead in sins, he says we were children of God's wrath. What we deserved is God's just judgment upon our sin and unrighteousness. We deserved damnation. But God, who is rich in mercy, did not leave us in that condition, but instead intervened and he sent someone with the gospel message. We heard that message as the Holy Spirit quickened our heart and we believed. Paul says that with the heart man believes and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. How is it with you, dear friend? You're on one side or the other of that verb. You either were in trespasses and sins dead or you are dead in trespasses and sins. There's no neutral ground there. Now, if you have been born again, if you've received the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit, if you have by faith received this gift of eternal life, you were dead in sins, but today you're alive in Jesus. But if you've rejected the gospel, if you are determined to do it your way, if you're convinced that you can do enough good deeds or reform your behavior enough to be acceptable to God, you will remain forever dead in trespasses and sins. But you don't have to. The gospel message is this. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're here today without Jesus, it's my wonderful privilege to invite you to receive him today. What do you have to do? Have to do anything. It's based on what Jesus did. Jesus took your punishment on himself at the cross. You simply put your faith and trust in what he did. Confess your sins to the Lord, turn from them, and begin to live for Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the gospel. And Lord, as we've asked some diagnostic questions of this great text today, for most of it, it's nothing new, and yet it is fresh and, and wonderful, still the same. Because, Lord, we've been reminded over the last two weeks that we were not just in need of reform. We were in desperate need of life. We were dead spiritually. And for all of us who, who know Jesus, we are trophies of grace today because of what he did. He breathed spiritual life to us and we were born again. 
You adopted us into your family and now you call us sons and daughters rather than rebels. You banged your gavel and said not guilty and you justified us. You are now sanctifying us through your word and through godly fellowship. And one day in the future, Lord, you're going to bring us to that state of glorification because we are in Christ. Father, I thank you for all my brothers and sisters who can truthfully say that of themselves. And Lord, if there is even one here today who's still dead in sin, I pray that your spirit would do his work of convicting them of sin and judgment and righteousness. I pray today they would call upon the name of Jesus and be saved. Lord, would you do that multiplied times over in this place, in our city, in our county, our state, in our nation, not for our glory, but for yours. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.